Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we're going to be talking about the Hong Kong Film Awards, some updates on the Netflix RTHK series offerings, Kevin's got some Bollywood news, and for our films this week, Kevin's going to be taking a look at Sean Yu in Mad World, and I'll be talking about something different over on Netflix with the Japanese manga-turned-series Samurai Gourmet. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and sitting at his reviews desk in the front row of the Hong Kong Film Awards is Mr. Kevin Ma. Yeah, I wish, Paul. More like the front row in front of my TV. (laughs) Well, you did give many people a front row seat with your blogging, right, over the weekend? Yes, yes. Last week, uh, I mean, last night, uh, I held a uh, epic three-hour-plus live blog, um, which gave me the biggest traffic ever on my site, thanks to all the people reloading <laughs> um, <laughs> the page all the time. But no, actually, uh, in terms of individual visitors, also gave me the biggest um, uh, traffic of the site since it started. So thank you all for reading, and I had a lot of fun doing it. It's been um, two years since I did my last Hong Kong Film Awards blog, and um, don't worry, we'll be back in November with the Golden Horse like blog as well. All right, so no live blog for Mr. Hong Kong this year. Did, did we ever do one? I think you're mistaking me for another <laughs> blog, Paul. What kind of uh, what kind of websites are we reading? Huh? Well, one can hope. One can hope, right? Um, yes. Uh, so it's it's good. We're going to get into the uh, results of the Hong Kong Film Awards in just a bit in our new section. But a um, little bit of errata before we go on. Last week, I had talked about doing the new Anne Hathaway kaiju movie, Colossal, uh, as my review this week, and I was looking forward to going out and see it. And come Friday, I'm, like, looking at Fandango and saying, yeah, movie's released today, and there it is, and I'm checking all the cinemas in my area, and it's not playing anywhere. And I'm thinking to myself, what is up with this movie? I mean, I know it's kind of considered an indie but it's Anne Hathaway. It's Jason Sudeikis. I mean, they were. I saw them on uh, the Ellen Show last week. You know, promoting the film. How is this just getting a limited release? I really don't understand. Um, you know, you know what's up. And I guess distributors figured it's not going to make money, or it's you know only going to be relevant for people living in places like San Francisco and New York who go in for kaiju cinema. I, I'm having a hard time uh, understanding. Uh, why they don't have any love for Florida down here. So no Colossal for me, and uh, hopefully I'll get to see it at some point and come back and give you all a review on it. And from what, what I understand, I mean, I don't know if you've heard anything on your end, Kevin. It's not like an early release. It's just a limited release for some reason. And uh, it's just really weird. You'd think Anne Hathaway, she's, I mean, pretty big headliner as a female lead. You'd think this would get a pretty universal release. Oh, because this is a it's an ultra indie film, and actually dis- the distributor, uh, Voltage Pictures, is a really small distributor, and and they usually only have essentially the resource to book uh, a limited release. Uh, so it opened only opened in four cinemas uh, over the weekend, and two I guess two in LA, two in New York, as per usual. Um, and it did really well in limited release. Actually, it did about thirty thousand per screen, which is uh which is really optimistic, uh, which is quite good, uh, uh quite hopeful. For a future release, mm-hmm. um, I'm guessing the film will slowly expand, just like you know most indie films. Um, it's a normal release pattern. I mean, uh, for these type of art house, uh, weird sort of off the uh, off the beaten path sort of film, and I'm guessing that um, the actual content might be a bit more weird than what the trailer is is selling. Uh, I guess it's quite a hard, not an easy film to sell mm-hmm. uh, to people, so it takes a bit more time to build up uh, buzz, and this is pretty much the per 
usual uh, path for the release. Hopefully, it will expand slowly over the coming weeks. Um, I haven't checked the official website for about about when it will be released nationwide. But uh, yeah, don't worry. Rest of the country, only pretty much two cities got to see the film so far. Yeah, it's it's weird though because I'm reminded back of uh, Gareth Edwards' kind of early indie work, Monsters which got limited release theatrically, but also they did the thing where they put it on iTunes for rent as a you know much more sort of a movie ticket price rental rather than the, the regular rental price. I mean, the, I would think that in this day and age, if you're going the indie route to get more exposure, maybe you, know, you want to be tapped more into the streaming or social media side of things rather than just going with two cities. That just seems a bit old school to me. Um, um, well, that depends on certain because honestly, films that have day and date VOD, I there hasn't been one financially successful film where they did a, uh, a theater and VOD uh, day and date hmm. uh, release and that proven to be actually commercially successful. Hmm. To be honest, it hasn't happened yet. Um, I think there's still that direct-to-video stigma that comes with films like that. And so, um, especially film, you know, sort of more offbeat titles like this, um, it does take time to build word of mouth. I mean, if it does well the first weekend and then it makes the news, it's on the trade, and then people would say, oh, this is the Anne Hathaway movie everyone's talking about, then it slowly builds mouth, uh, word of mouth across the country. Um, so I just looked up the listings, and um, it's expanding to theaters this weekend, the 14th. Uh, but it won't be expanded to Florida until the 21st, where it will play in Aventura, Miami, South Miami, and Tampa. I don't know if that's the, anywhere that's, that's, close to you, but at least four right. theaters. And then it will expand to Jacksonville, Naples, Tallahassee, Vero Beach, and West Palm Beach on the 28th. Oh, okay. There we go. West Palm, so there you go. I can do. Um, there you go. So, so it yeah, is well, going to take a slow expansion. A, a slightly postponed review of Colossal coming on a future screen screen podcast. So stay tuned, listeners. If you manage to get out and see that, if you're a listener in New York or in L.A. and you've seen it, you have some thoughts on us, do drop us a line and let us know if you think it's worth our time. All right, let's end that bit of uh, blab, blab, blabity blab and get over to some real talk with some news and into our reviews ultimately, but first, Kevin at his reviews desk with this week's news. Here at the news desk, uh, of course, we're going to talk Hong Kong Film Awards. Uh, the 36th Hong Kong Film Awards was held this past weekend here in Hong Kong, and uh, uh, lucky for fans of uh, young cinema, uh, Travisa, the Johnny Toe-produced um, uh, crime drama, was the top winner of the night. It won Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor for Lam Ka Tong, yay, uh, Best Screenplay, and Best Editing. So winning a total of five awards. Um, and of course, this is, amazingly enough, this is the first nomination for all five winners. This is the first time they've been nominated. Uh, um or the first time they won the award. Sorry, I think David Richardson has been nominated tons of times, but this is the first time um, uh, they won uh, the award. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's great. Uh, it's one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, I'm really happy to see it do well. Um, sorry, I just noticed I made a small mistake in my story, so I'm just I just did like a double take. Okay, I have to edit this after we record. Um, and then um, the other film, uh, Mad World, which we're going to talk about in a bit, uh, was the second biggest winner. It took home three awards. It won Best New Director, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. Uh, both Wong Chun, the director, and Elaine Jin uh, for Best Supporting Actress actually took home the same awards uh, back at the Golden Horse Awards in November. So um, so they came back and came back home and uh, also won the same awards they won last year. Uh, so that's good. The uh, other so Mad World was a film uh, in the um, Hong Kong government's first film initiative, um, which gives a very small amount of money to first-time feature filmmakers to to make a feature film. And um, Wong Chen's uh, Mad World and also Weeds on Fire by uh, Steve Fat, um, those two films were in the student category, and they were both made for uh, Hong Kong two million Hong Kong dollars each. Um, and uh, Weeds on Fire uh, took home two awards. It won Best Original Song and Best New Actor for Wu Zitong, who is also, uh, who is also a baseball player in real life. Um, so it's a really good start for the initiative. 
um, five awards with their first two projects. Um, the the, the professional group winner that year, um, King Chun's Opus 1, starring Steffi Tang, um, should be completed by now, but has yet to be released. Uh, so let's see if the plan will go free for free this year. Um, so the three biggest nominated films, uh, Mermaid, Soulmate, and Cold War 2, were pretty much uh, shut out. Uh, Soulmate and Cold War each only won one award. Uh, Soulmate won Best Original Film Score. And uh, Cold War II won Best Sound Design. Now, it is especially a bit embarrassing for Soulmate because it had the most number of nominations for the night. Uh, Stephen Chow's uh, Mermaid, uh, it had eight nominations, uh, but then it didn't win a single award. And, of course, Stephen Chow probably knew it wasn't going to happen or he's just sort of a miserable old guy now, so he didn't show up. Um, and and, uh, and claim his, um, I guess, loserdom, whatever. Um uh, the, the ceremony uh, was hosted by Ronald Chang. This is the second year in a row where we have a solo host uh, as opposed to a group of hosts uh, doing back and forths. Um, this is also a second year uh, with uh, Derek Yee as the chairman of the awards and Felix Chung, the scriptwriter, of uh, the co-writer of Infernal Affairs. He led the creative team. Um, and uh, Ronald Chang... You know, moved the ceremony along very nicely. Um, there, there were only two musical performances, no overlong uh, stand-up comedy routine, and the whole thing was over in three hours and sixteen minutes, which is pretty good compared to that. You know, considering that we've done four hours in the past, if you look at our live blog. So, um, thanks to the Hong Kong Film Awards for running such a brisk ceremony. Um, oh, by the way, the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award went to. Um, Fong Yim Fong, a, uh, an actress who also was active in the Cantonese opera scene. And the Professional Achievement Award went to poster illustrator Yuan Tai Yong, who uh, is the subject of a new documentary called A Posterist. And uh, he drew some of the most iconic um, movie posters in Hong Kong cinema history, mainly the films by the Hui brothers. So that's it. Paul, what, what did you think of the, uh, uh, the results? Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I mean, looking at the the big win by Trevisa, you know, also as sort of this kind of mixed directorial effort in some ways similar to 10 years, right? You know, you have kind of multiple teams working. I mean, this obviously much more connected overall than 10 years was. Um, but again, just sort of an interesting choice for the big winner in, in terms of categories. Uh, you know, kind of happy that Gordon Lamb won but I think I mentioned before my pick really um, from out of Trevisa was Philip Kung Homan in Supporting Actor who didn't win. He lost out to... Uh, yeah, Philip lost. Eric Tang. I mean, you can't dislike Eric Tang because he's just excellent in pretty much anything he does, though. Um, but I was, kind of, I was kind of rooting for him. Always great to see Cara Hoy, you know, pull, pull out an award. The thing that really made me happy is the couple of wins from uh, Monkey King 2, I think, which pulled out... Uh, best makeup and costume and also best visual effects. So I was happy to see that get a, a, little, a little bit of love because that was one of my favorite from um, last year. Um, of course, some of them I haven't quite seen yet. I haven't seen Soulmate, which um, won, I think, for best film score. Have not seen Operation Mekong, even though I don't have an excuse because I know it's on iTunes um, for um, best action choreography. So there's a couple I need to catch up on that are out there. I know See You Tomorrow is now out on Yes Asia, and hopefully that will be part of my next order uh, overall. So getting getting a chance to catch up on a couple of the winners that I haven't seen yet. But, uh, you know, it's good that they've kind of made it a, a slightly more streamlined and less pomp and circumstance kind of show. And, you know, they got to the point. And uh, congratulations to all the winners. Any, any uh, disappointments on your end, Kevin? Um, well, more like pleasant surprises. Um, I thought that, you know, Cold War II was such a big commercial success this year and Hong Kong Film Awards, the people that vote for it, um, they have a tendency to reward commercial success. So I had, I feared that Cold War II would, would have quite a few awards and it ended up not get, not, not even being recognized for the technical achievements. Um, it was a surprise to see CCU tomorrow, which was critically, 
um, uh, lambasted here in uh, Hong Kong and in China uh, end up, you know, redeeming itself with two awards, even though they're both technical awards. Um, and uh, like you said, Monkey King 2, um, glad people remember the Monkey King 2, although I'm not a huge fan of the film. Um, the, the, the visual design is, is, is excellent, of course. Um, so it was good to see the, uh, the, the voting body went with um, a lot of the, the good choices. And of course, I was a bit heartbroken for Philip Kern. Uh, he was his first time nominee, and uh, and people thought that he had a very good chance of winning. Um, but of course, you can't be Eric Zung, as I would talk about in Mad World. Eric Zung is excellent, and even he was very nervous. He said because um, he was going up against the likes of Paul Chen and and of course Philip and uh, and Liu Kai Chi and Uman Tak. So it was a very very tough category, and um, and I can't say that Eric Zung didn't deserve to win. Hmm, indeed, indeed. Well, uh, guess well, if you have some thoughts on the winners, the losers, or anything in general, and you'd like to share them with us, do drop us a line and let us know what you thought of this year's Hong Kong Film Awards. A little bit of uh, Netflix news now. Uh, some updates to some stories we had in a couple episodes back. Uh, you may recall that uh, Kevin had mentioned pre- on a previous show that a couple of RTHK series from, I think, around 2014 or 13 or so um, had popped up on Netflix. And this included The Neighborhood, um, uh, My Family Doctor, and IT Heroes or IT Buddies. Um, anyway, three series in total. And I was very excited, and I plopped down to start watching them. I actually started watching The Neighborhood, and then the next day it was pulled off of uh, U.S. Netflix and Hong Kong Netflix for reasons, right? Um, so I'm happy to say that at least two of the series have returned. Um, My Family Doctor is back up on Netflix along with, uh, let me get the name right. Uh, da, 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 IT. The Neighborhood is also back. IT, is it? Uh... Yeah, The Neighborhood, I, I just saw it. Um, and also there's a new show about firefighters named the Elite Brigade, I think. Oh yes, I'm looking at it now. So The Neighborhood is indeed back. Um, it wasn't back when I started watching My Family Doctor because I have it in, in my queue. So, yeah, all three series are back now, which is good. So uh, what's the IT show? I can't find the name of the IT show. Durr. IT Champions. IT Champions. There it is. Uh, IT Buddies. I'm thinking of a... Of, TVB uh, Buddies. TVB Buddies or something, yeah. Uh, so IT Champions, My Family Doctor, and uh, The Neighborhood are there. And you said there's a fourth one now, Kevin? Yes, a, uh, a firefighter show called Elite Brigade, I believe. Okay. So, elite Brigade. Yeah, check them yeah, out. Yeah, Elite Brigade. Again, it's you know it's not movie quality stuff. It's television quality stuff. But um, it's good to see Hong Kong having some presence here, especially on U.S. Um, Netflix in terms of television dramas. And because these are coming from RTHK, I think we mentioned before, um, you know they the, the stories are pretty good, and you'll see some veteran actors there in in you know roles popping up now and again, um, and the storylines. Uh, kind of morality plays in some ways, but often based around social issues that are happening at the time. So we watched the first episode of My Family Doctor, and it's kind of about, you know, the elderly going in and seeking treatment. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting episode overall. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, do check out and support these shows, and hopefully Netflix will get the message and give us even more of them. Well, let's not forget that considering that it's, ba- it's made with RTHK money, our tax money also paid for these shows, so you have an <laughs> obligation to watch them. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, so get out there, you Hong Kongers, and, and uh, support your tax dollars at work. All right, our final news story for this week, uh, some Bollywood news. That's right. Um, so Bollywood film, uh, wrestling film, uh, Dango, which stars Amir Khan, who was also in uh, Three Idiots, has been an enormous hit in Taiwan. Um, in its third week, only in its third week, the uh, wrestling drama managed to climb to the top of the Taipei box office, which is extreme, which is quite amazing, uh, especially for an Indian film, let alone a foreign film. Um, the film has already crushed the record um, set by, you know, initially set by Three Idiots as the highest grossing Indian film in, at least in Taipei ever. Um, and according to the distributor, it's already uh, it's also cracked the national or nationwide record. Um, uh, and of course, it's only Amir Khan can be outdone by Amir Khan. Um, Dango, by the way, I saw this film in Christmas when I was in Singapore, and uh, it's quite a crowd pleaser. Uh Amir Khan plays a, a former wrestler who um, 
in, in a small um, Indian village who defies gender conventions and tr- rigorously trains uh, two of his daughters to become uh, champion wrestlers, despite uh, the the tradition and the uh, uh, female um, traditions in the village. Um, it's quite a crowd pleaser and it's a rousing film. And um, if you do have a chance to watch it, unfortunately, it's not on iTunes yet. I guess the distributor, uh, UTV, knows that they have quite a long international run on their hands, so they're not putting it on iTunes just yet. Um, but if you have a chance, uh, check it out and see why Taiwan audiences uh, love this film so much. Yeah, and look from the looks of the poster, it looks like Amir is bulked up a little bit for the role, too. Oh, yeah, he's definitely bulked up. Uh, the opening scene itself, he's already taking off his clothes and, and you know, doing a wrestling match. And uh, and he does that throughout the film. And he plays, a, he plays almost like a Whiplash-esque father figure, mm-hmm. uh, very hard-ass and... But uh, I found the film's gender politics a bit weird, uh, a bit sort of too much father knows best kind of thing, um, which I found weird for a film that is supposed to be, you know, about defying gender gender conventions. But um, otherwise, it's it's uh, very well made. It's a crowd pleaser, and uh, it, it's clear that the uh, the messages are universal. All right. Is it a now? Is it a standard like uh, movie, or is it a typical Bollywood musical? Um, no, actually, this one doesn't have. Only has one single um, musical sequence and a set at a wedding, so it actually makes perfect sense. Mm. Um, otherwise, this sort of defies the. Um, and and it's 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 been a long trend actually, recent years. Um, for the last I don't know five ten years maybe, you you're getting these more serious Indian films that are still made with Bollywood budget with Bollywood stars, but um, they're slowly taking out the musical sequences and telling you know focus on storytelling. So. Um, uh, so Dango, Amir Khan especially, he hasn't done a musical sequence, I think, since um, Free Idiots, actually. Uh, I mean, he does some in Doom 3, but he wasn't a main star of that film anyway. But for his his starring efforts, he he has uh, done a lot less musical sequences than he did in, uh, than did in the past. So, um, and we all know sort of Amir Khan's uh, status as a, as, a, as a very respected actor and, of course, producer. So he's kind of leading the way for these more serious Bollywood films that travel abroad. Hmm. I see that it's uh, partly produced by Disney and distributed by Walt Disney Studios, um, according to the Wikipedia site. So, I mean, is it is it within the realm of a sort of family-friendly Disney-esque kind of thing? Um, I think that's a local, it's a local production. It's mainly, uh, well, I, it's family friendly, I suppose, if you can sort of stand the, um, it's not a, it's not a particularly offensive film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that the, the training sequences may be a bit, um, uh, uh, traumatic, but yeah, mostly it's, um, and you know, Walt Disney doesn't necessarily make really like sugary family films anyway. If you've seen a uh, queen of Katwe, um, made last year that was also Disney, but it's about a um, a chess player in uh, in Uganda. A true story uh, who sort of breaks out of her own shell and becomes a chess champion in her country. Um, that film is made by Disney and is rated PG, but it it's also not you know the very uh, it's not the sanitized world that Disney tends to present. And the same for Dango. It's the way that Disney Disney works with local companies that he lets they let local storyteller do what they do best and then and then they just handle the money side or they just count the money essentially right mm. so so um they're they they uh, what disney is doing here in asia it's um it's a bit less uh, intrusive than say what they do in hollywood yeah so it's not along the lines of high school musical china right no no not at all no 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 it, it would be more like like i said it'd be more like a film like queen of katwe which um does have its offensive or it does have a scary moments but mm. it's generally a a family friendly and uh and a crowd pleaser uh film all right that's going to wrap it up for our news this week we'll be back after this short musical interlude with kevin's review of mad And welcome back. Our East Screen review for this week, Kevin takes on Sean Yu in the much acclaimed, uh, out from left field film, Mad World, right? 
Yes, yes. Um, finally, we're talking about it. I actually saw this film for the first time back in November uh, when it was playing at the uh, Hong, Kong, Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. Um, and then I saw it again when it came out um, two weeks ago. So we finally got the release uh, here in Hong Kong. Um, sorry, I saw it a week ago, I think a week and a half ago. Um, but yeah, it came out in theaters right in time for the Hong Kong Film Awards. Um, the film is the directorial debut of Wong Chen, who... Um, who got his start um, as a film student at City University, and then he made a uh, an award-winning um, Fresh Wave short, and then he slowly entered the film industry, made another short film for Eric Zhang, um, that Eric Zhang produced, and then he became a co-writer for uh, The White Storm, one of the six writers of the film, I think, and now he makes his uh, solo feature film debut, uh, with this mental illness drama. Uh, the story, after a stint in the mental hospital for accidentally killing his mother, played by Elaine Jin, Tong, played by Shang Yu, is forced to live in a subdivided flat with, a, with his estranged truck driver father, played by Eric Zhang. As Tong tries to contain his bipolar disorder in the real world, his father struggles to become a father once again. Soon the two men realize that they live in a society that is slowly driving everyone mad. Um, yeah, that sounds like a real good time at <laughs> the movies. Um, foreign audiences may see this film as a sort of a movie of the week story. Uh, you have mental illness and family drama, domestic drama and things like that. But it's handled, I think, it's in a very um, impressively mature way that's rarely seen in Hong Kong cinema. Um, like I said earlier during the news section, this is the second film in the Hong Kong government's first film initiative. And I, I'm not a huge fan of Weeds on Fire, but um, it's a solid piece of work. And uh, they're now two for two, thanks to Mad World. So let's see what they come up with next. Um, Wong Chen, with only 16 days to shoot the film, I mean 17 days, um, because of a reduced budget, he steps back and pretty much lets his actors uh, do the flexing. Uh, he shows extraordinary restraint behind the camera. He's a very down-to-earth director um, who, who really cares about telling the story of his character rather than rather than showing off his skills with it um the actors are uniformly good um sean yu uh who got his first um best actor nomination with this film i think gives his most impressive performance of his career um he plays a very difficult character i mean bipolar disorder involves sort of going high and then going low and he has to do that in the same film in a very short shooting schedule and he really dives into the character head first um and he handles both the highs and the lows of the character very well and it's a it's a very uh, powerful performance of course eric Zhang and elaine jen both now hong kong film award winners for their performances um are very good in the film elaine jen um veered towards overacting uh because she plays sort of uh, i think she's kind of seen now she has a bit of dementia um and of course she bemoans she gives um tong a very hard time because she's left alone her husband is gone her younger son moved to america and never came back and uh, tong is left alone to to care for her and in the flashbacks they have a very um hostile very volatile relationship uh that's perhaps out of her control and and she she is heartbreakingly um i think in pain in this whole film and um and it's it's a very um um powerful performance charmaine fong who plays um tong's ex-girlfriend uh only has very few scenes i think only about three scenes four scenes and she earned a best supporting actress for a single monologue scene alone it is very much an award bait moment and it is a hell of an award bait moment um and and i think you have to see it to to believe it um the film deals with a very current and a very real hong kong uh there are subdivided flats uh you have the gossipy gossipy crowd at weddings talking about money it's a money obsessed society um uh people who discriminate against those of um mental illness you have grassroots life and it's a very um uh, it's almost too real depiction of Hong Kong, um, and it shows, and like like the title said, it shows a Hong Kong that is slowly driving its people mad um, just by being what it is. Um, both the writer Florence Chan and Wong Chun, they're both very intelligent and thoughtful storytellers um, who clearly show a concern for um, all sectors of society. 
especially those who are outcasts and those who demand or who 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 deserves more attention. It asks uh, the film asks very difficult questions about how to care for a loved one who has any kind of illness. Um, there's a very important line spoken by Eric Zung. It asks. Um, whether everything can be outsourced in life because Hong Kong we're famous I guess for outsourcing our security guards are outsourced um, our uh, supermarkets the the handling of our, our markets are outsourced um, our domestic work is outsourced we just throw away everything our responsibility we throw money at it and we throw it into someone else's lap and and I think it brings up a, a very difficult but a very important point um, Mad World is, is not always an easy film to watch. It, it can be emotional draining and uh, it does deal with very um, touchy issues that, that may be too close to home for some people, but it does demand your attention and totally deserves it. Um, it's just very compelling, very riveting and, and, and just an excellent film. It's one of the best Hong Kong films of this year and I think it's not to be missed. Yeah, it's... Um... It it seems like a film that I'd maybe want to watch once, <laughs> not again. I mean, is it really that depressing? It is depressing, but the film ends with a note of hope. And like I said, the the film shows a real. They don't. It does. They they don't exploit the characters. Um, all the character is no bad guy in the film. And unlike uh, the Lunatics, the Derek Yee film, this takes a very down to earth approach, a very real approach to mental mental illness, which means that. Um, not everything's gonna be fixed, but you won't have people swinging, swinging um, uh, choppers on the street or or screaming at people. It, like I said, there are highs and there are lows, and it's a very realistic depiction. Um, and the film does have its moments of humor, um, and and the actors are great. And um, I think um, the fact that it it shows real concern for its characters, and the fact that each character is flawed, but they're always they also understandable in some way makes it um a very compelling film to watch and and even though it is like i said it's emotionally demanding but it's not so depressing that it drives you away i think it does keep you watching from beginning to end mm. yeah i'm i mean i'm kind of torn i do want to see it um but it does touch on two things that personally resonate one being um the idea of uh, bipolar disorder because i do have a family member who is you know, who, who deals with that. Um, and I also, myself, I did live in a subdivided flat my first year in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. and <laughs> it was not a great experience. Um, mm -hmm. It was, it wasn't terrible because I only had to live there for, I want to say a month or so before I actually got into a regular village house with a roommate. But, um, you know, I can, I, you know, when I watch, I, I look at some of these, uh, you know, RTHK news stories and things about the growth of subdivided flats. And the ones that I see on these shows, of course, are nowhere near as nice as the one I was in. I was in one in Chung Shui that was newly renovated. So even though it was subdivided, it at least looked clean and, and decent inside. When you see some of these on some of these news programs, um, they just look old and moldy and, and are in terrible condition. But um, it's a, it's an issue that is definitely one that resonate strongly with me because I've been there and I I've experienced that and it's not something that it's not something that you'd wish people would have to do um and unfortunately you know it does seem like that this film is is geared to tackle some of those current political topics like this I mean I I, I see these Facebook posts all the time you know and they're these things that get passed around as jokes about um and you've probably seen them too you know where like uh the the newest flats on the market that are selling literally for you know upwards of half a million dollars U.S. Um, are smaller than a prison cell in some right. cases you know uh, at Stanley Prison it's 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 gotten that crazy and of course nobody seems to want to do anything about it because those in, the people in power are making making bank off of the situation and you know whether that the newly elected, quote-unquote, elected leader is going to fix anything or not, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I think anyone who um, cares about Hong Kong, I mean, people who think of Hong Kong as this big, prosperous city and and wonder why we're so unhappy, I think um, this film will, will certainly shed uh, some light into the situation for them. Sinran no jidai. 
斧が腕一つで世を渡る男がいた信氏である定年を迎えたしがない還暦男霞武志自由を持て余す彼が見つけた小さな喜びそれは一人飯定年して初めて視界が開けたような気がするだが All right, for our next review up this week, something a little bit different. As I said, I wasn't able to get out and see Colossal. So I decided to turn inward to Netflix with a show that I started watching a couple weeks ago and I had wanted to talk about it for some time called Samurai Gourmet.、Um, this is a show, I don't know if it's specifically produced for Netflix, but it's listed as a Netflix original、um, coming out earlier this year in 2017. And it stars Naoto Takanaka、um, as the main character, Takeshi Kasumi, who you will pretty much know from anything and everything in Japan. If you've ever watched anything out of Japan, movies,、uh, Masked Rider, TV dramas, I mean, you, he's everywhere. So, you know, you, you, you will recognize him.、Uh, also, here is Tetsuji、uh, Tamiyama,、uh, who plays the samurai. And he, you'll know him from movies like Cassern and Norwegian Wood. And of course, the great Hanami Suzuki、uh, as Takeshi's wife, who goes all the way back to Tokyo Love Story 1991 and still looks pretty amazing. And I think she was in more recent films like、uh, Platinum Data as well. So the story here、uh, is that 60 year old Takeshi Kasumi, played by Naoto,、um, has retired. Now, with nothing but time on his hands, he takes it upon himself. To go out and rediscover various culinary delights. Helping him along his journey is an imaginary Ronin warrior who manifests at odd times to help shake Takeshi out of his mild salaryman persona and discover what is best in life.、Um, so, yes, this is a series of about 12 episodes and it is based on a manga series called Nobushi no Gourmet from 2013. By manga artist and writer、uh, Masayuki Kasumi, who is perhaps a bit more famous from、uh, a similar series called Kodoku no Gourmet from 2012, which is about a salaryman who travels around for business and is, is, you know,、uh, is a bit of a foodie as well. That's one of my favorite shows. One、yeah. of my, it was probably one of my favorite things in the world, Kodoku no Gourmet.、Yeah. Have you read the manga?、Yeah. No, but the show is one of my、yeah. favorite things in the world. I, mean, I can't stop recommending it to people because it, does, it, it, it builds up a list of restaurants you must visit if you ever travel to Tokyo by yourself. So that's, that's also a long running live action series. I think they're getting ready to go into season six with that show.、Uh, apparently, there's a spin off of that show in China as well.、Um, and of course, the, the original manga. Neither、uh, that. Manga or Nobushi no Gourmet have been made it over to English translations. I guess they figure it's too culturally specific, but that would be stuff that I'd love to read、um, to be sure. So, this 12 episode series, again,、um, kind of showing that Netflix is able to reach outside of the box.、Um, and the lead actor here, Takeshi, he's really in his element. He's kind of playing. A role that you often see him in as this sort of this mild mannered guy who wants to sort of extend out of his comfort zone. So, if you've seen him in, you know,、um, Sumo Do, Sumo Don't, or Shall We Dance, or things like that, where, you know, he, he, he's, he's kind of that guy again that he plays so well. He, you know, he does other roles and, and can, can stretch as well, but I think this is what people really love to see him doing.、Um, And、I've, as I was researching for this series, you know, this has been described elsewhere as food porn. Yes, yes, it is. It is food porn to the max. Give it a triple X rating if you can do that for food porn. But it is also very Japanese.、Uh, and that's the thing I love about it. Unlike your modern cooking shows on Food Network and others, you know, your Anthony Bourdain's or your, you know,、uh, Andrew Zimmerman's. Which tend to focus more on the host talking and eating the food and gabbing about this and that and, and experiences that he's had. You know, this series really wants to just focus on the food. It does have a narrative as this character goes around, and each episode is fairly self contained. There doesn't seem to be sort of an overarching narrative per se, 
rather than other than you know this character sort of going out and exploring and and trying to get out of his old comfort zone of just you know his salaryman life um so this you know but a lot of it is very sort of slow long shots of food preparation you know uh, of various sorts even simple food like one of the episodes focuses on his wife just making a very simple but elegant bowl of ramen at home and it's really you know these high definition long shots of food and i guess for a western a standard western audience they feel this is kind of slow but the episodes themselves are not very long they're about 20 minutes or so and along with the music they provide for the soundtrack it's just very distinct it's very japanese is is the best way to describe it and if that's something that appeals to you you're going to love this show um the the encounters in terms of the narrative again are not overly deep he has for example an encounter with a rude stall owner in one episode uh, a bratty niece another one where he goes on his own and he's like reliving an eating experience from his youth so there are you know these slight elements of narrative but really it's more about just him and the food that he's discovering and this is a show that's gonna make you hungry whether you're a foodie or not it's gonna you know as I sit there watching I'm going I just want to go to Japan right now right now Um, it's that kind of show Um, very good production values great attention to detail you know, and I'm not a foodie myself. I've never been much of a foodie. I, you know, just tend to like meat and potato kind of dishes in Hong Kong. You know, I never wanted to go out to the fancy restaurants. I just want to go to a good local cha-cha-tang, right? Um, but if you like food, if you like Japanese cinema or you like Japanese TV drama or Asian culture in general, I think that there's enough elements here in this series that you're going to enjoy this series. It, again, it gets a little bit abstract at times because... You know, he goes into these places and he starts eating and then, you know, this imaginary samurai pops up and the setting will change. And, you know, it's somehow teaching him or or somebody else a lesson about, you know, what is best in life or how to behave or how to handle a certain situation. Um, But again, a lot of it is just, you know, focusing on, you know, preparing the food like you'd see uh, in in a documentary more so than something that has a narrative. So... It's there on Netflix US. I'm assuming it's something that will be on Netflix Hong Kong as well. I'm probably thinking that this came out of Netflix Japan, but I can't check. But it is there. Check it out if that appeals to you, um, because I think it's great, and I want to see a lot more of stuff like this. Um, Kevin, have you had any? I know you said you loved the Japanese series, um, Kodoku no Gourmet. Have you had any experience with this series at all? No, I haven't had time. Um, it's just um, a lot of shows waiting for me on Netflix, and it is all by queue. I'm in, in, instead I'm watching Terrence House right now because that's oh, my that's another that's my one reality that I got, show. Got recommended. Can you explain that? Because I I got recommended. I guess it's the second season because it's in Hawaii, and Netflix yeah. knows that I like Hawaii stuff. Was there a first season somewhere else or? It's actually the third season. The first season was on Fuji TV, and it's uh, you got these um, so it's three men, three guys, three girls. They live in a very nice house provided by a television station. Um, the first season it's in uh, south of Yokohama by the by the sea. Mm. Um, and then the second season, which was produced by Netflix, uh, they moved the ca- uh, they started a new cast in Tokyo. Uh, so it's about that's also thirty something episodes. Um, and then for the third season, they uh, moved the house to Hawaii, and uh, they've released two parts of it. It's it's been released week week by week in Japan, um, but for international release, they round up about eight episodes at a time. So right now, sixteen episodes are up, and uh, it's just one of those young people, real world type of thing. Yeah, it, it and, looked uh, exactly like a, a an iteration of the real world, just for the modern day, basically. But of course, but it's, it's Japanese people or people who speak in Japanese, mostly Japanese. Uh, the Hawaii cast, uh, I think at least two of the main cast members aren't Japanese, but they speak close to fluent or fluent Japanese. Mm. But uh, you got people who are Jap- you know, who are very polite and and actually talk things out and and uh, who are imperfect, but they don't freak out and there's no hysterical you know moment for any of these yeah, people. Yeah. Um, it just it's a it's a guilty pleasure for me. Uh, yeah. So I've been trying to watch that. Yeah, it's, are, is the are the first two series available anywhere the second season the one that's set in tokyo is also available on netflix okay. um fully um so if you look up terrence house thing it's called boys and girls in the city um the first one um is not 
available because that was produced by Fuji Television, not um, not Netflix. Also, the film version, the film version of that first season, uh, it's a it's pretty much an extended finale, a ninety minute finale for that season. Uh, it's also produced by Fuji, so they did not make that available. But I hear that Japan Netflix has the first season, uh, but it's not subtitled. Mm, mm, all right. Yeah, so it, for the uninitiated, you may look at this and think, oh, it's, you know, like Big Brother, which is, I guess, the the current w- way of thing. But Big Brother is so extreme. They always get these extreme personalities because they want conflict. Back right. in the day in the 90s when all of this, I think it all traces back to MTV's real world, it was really just getting a bunch of college kids together to, like, live in a house Um, as roommates and it wasn't about extreme personalities necessarily it wasn't about who's the most shocking who's going to say the nastiest thing or anything like that it was really just about them living in the house for a period you know a summer or something and the kind of relationships they would have and I was kind of I kind of liked watching uh, real world back in the day so I'm I'm intrigued to see it return to this format especially if it's got sort of a you know an an Asian focus Um, I I didn't know that they had um, two seasons in Japan so I'm very curious to check that out um, so yeah, check that out also, and um, check out uh, Samurai Gourmet if you have the chance. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. And we also get a tremendous amount of support from our listeners like you. Um, if you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via our website at concast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eScreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. Now, normally in this section, I throw the ball over to Kevin, and we're going to do that in just a minute. But I do want to say... Um, uh, just a few words about our much beloved and favorite site, lovehkfilm.com, which is going bye-bye for now. Um, and maybe for good, maybe not, we never know. Um, but our friend, uh, fellow podcaster here occasionally on the show and film critic and mentor and, uh, you know, the, too, too many words to describe him. Uh, you know him by Kozo. We know him by Ross. Um, he's kind of you know he's been doing sporadic updates every couple months and he's come out with an announcement uh with his most recent update that he's probably going to be uh taking an extended break at least for a year maybe longer maybe permanently um just because of life you know things happening in life um that if you want to know more about what's happening in his life of course you can reach out and contact him directly i'm not going to get into it here but um you know his site has been a sort of a rallying point for many of us in the work that we do and he was an integral part of our movie nights there in Hong Kong um, and so I for one am going to miss his updates and his writing and hope for their you know return but I do as you know somebody who's also dealing with life I perfectly understand and uh, you know I can have nothing but tremendous amount of gratitude for all the work that he's done uh, over the years so if you are somebody who's ever followed his site, ever looked up movies or actors or any bit of information over on his site, um, I would urge you just to, you know, take a moment, um, go over to the Facebook group and, you know, offer a note of thanks. Or, you know, if you don't want to be public about it, just draw, you know, draft him a short email and say, you know, I've used your site and it's always been helpful and thanks, you know, just thanks for doing it. Because, you know, a lot of the stuff that's out there, we don't do it for money. Uh, we just do it because we love to do it, and we know that there are other people who love the kind of things we love. But it's always nice to get some feedback on the the, the work we do because, you know, it is work. And he put a lot of effort into the site, and I know that he puts a lot of effort into the writing that he does. So if you've appreciated, you know, just let him, let him know that you appreciate it, and I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah, I, I sat next to Ross at work for over five years, and and we still see each other quite often for films and things like that. But I know that he puts in a lot of 
physical and mental effort into the site. Um, you know, it's more than more than at least once a week when the next morning he comes into work and he says, oh, I slept really late because I was working on a site. So he puts in a lot of work and he's been putting in a lot of work for 15 years. And, you know, like you said, echoing what Paul says, we uh, we don't expect financial. Um, I mean, Ross could have cashed in, like you said in the blog, he could have cashed in, but he never did uh, for my new site. I also you know, paid for a lot of things. It's all out of our own pockets and I don't have any advertising and we're all just doing it sort of out of love um, for what we do and what we, what we watch. And, uh, and Ross has certainly been a huge part. He's kind of the reason why I even have this career uh, because he's the one who gave me my first shot. He uh, made me a reviewer for Love and Shade Film and, and, um, and he, of course he uh, helped uh, me get into Yes Asia and then got me into his whole career. So, um, um, he was huge thanks to to his site and for everything he's done. And uh, of course, there's a happy reason why he's um, why he's not doing the site. So, so uh, of yeah, course, it's, con- it's, it's nothing tragic. It's nothing tragic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So read the blog if you know. And of course, congrats to uh, Kozo. And uh, I look for uh, I look forward to uh, uh, meeting uh, the new member of the family. Yeah. All right, and as always, we close out this show by urging you to follow Kevin and all the stuff that he's doing uh, in addition to his uh, daily life. Uh, so, Kevin, where can they find out more about you? You can read uh, my news work uh, on the Asian film news site, Asia in Cinema. That's www.asiaincinema.com. You can follow it on Twitter at uh, Twitter slash Twitter.com slash at, uh, well, sorry, twitter.com slash Asia and Cinema. Uh, you can follow the Facebook page uh, or like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Asia and Cinema. Uh, you can read my work on uh, Cathay Pacific Airways uh, on Discovery Magazine and, of course, on Cathay Dragon uh, Airlines uh, in Silk Road Magazine. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. And you can email me at Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. Excellent. All right. Our next show will be episode 223. Um, Nail Clipper Romance. Is that on the agenda? Yes, I'll try and watch it this weekend. But, you know, we have the Hong Kong International Film Festival going on uh, starting tomorrow night, which is why we recorded uh, one night early. Um, But... I will definitely try and fit it in uh, into my schedule, and we can do it for the next episode before I fly off to Udine. Yes, excellent. And if possible, I'm going to try and get out to see the latest in the car chase crazy film series um, that is known as the what, the Fate of the Furious, I think is the, the latest iteration. Um, that looks over top, but before I do that, of course, I have to watch the last one because I haven't watched the last one yet. I've seen all of them, but I didn't get out to see that one. So, uh, it, it's all just about one thing, Paul, the whole thing, the whole series. It's about family. family. Yeah. Family. <laughs> you going to turn your back on family? Family. <laughs> family. Uh, yeah. So all of that family and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying happy Hong Kong International Film Festival to all of you film goers who can be there and we'll see you next time. See you next time, family. Oh,